Welcome to the Libro Europe podcast, the European Libro Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And what a great episode we have today. We are very privileged to have on the podcast the member of the European Parliament, Urmash Payet. Mr. Payet is a member of the Renew Europe Group, and he comes from Estonia, and is also vice chair of the Committee on Foreign Affairs for the European Parliament. We get into the question of EU enlargement, something that the MEP has written and talked about. We also have his views on the future relationship between European Union and Russia, this after, of course, the barbaric invasion and attack on Ukraine, and what to do with countries that are not in the same page sharing the urgency of punishing Russia and Mr. Putin for these actions in Ukraine. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the projects of the European Luma Forum for some summer reading. And now, with no further ado, I bring you MEP Urmash Payet. I'm here with MEP Urmash Payet. Mr. Payet, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for your interest. Oh, we're very interested. We're going to talk about EU enlargement and your takes on it. But before we go into that, tell to our listeners a little bit of the path it took for us to be talking on the podcast. Well, I started as a journalist. So already during my studies at the university and even before, I worked as a journalist in the Estonian public radio and in the biggest newspaper. And then I switched and then I started to, well, work in politics so that initially I was the head of one of the city districts in my hometown Tallinn and uh, then I was elected to Estonian national parliament, then I was minister for culture, then minister for foreign affairs for nine and a half years and then since um, 2014 uh, I'm member of the European Parliament so that mm. here now I have been like seven and a half years. Do you miss the time where you were a journalist? Sometimes but but not really I guess that uh, this, this is actually behind me now this, mm. this part of my life. But just one more follow-up because I do care about uh, the journalist profession even if I'm not a journalist but does that training then feeds into your work as a politician, the training you had as a journalist? Well, I guess everything is, is linked to everything. So that, of course, if you're a journalist, you, and, and I dealt mainly with uh, foreign affairs, but also domestic Estonian politics. Mm, so that, of course, I asked the questions, uh, I guess, what uh, people anyway were asking. And also in my later job as politician, well, I guess that, the same kind of thinking is still there, so that you should also speak so and speak about the issues uh, where people really care about and, and potentially also have interest and questions. So that I guess that for communications to know how press works and uh, which are the links well, to the society through press, I guess that, of course, it's helpful. Very good. Well, with your training as journalists, if my questions, they're not very interesting or they don't make sense, please let me know <laughs> that, I can, that I can learn from your experience. There, there are no stupid questions. There are only <laughs> stupid answers. So that's, that's, a very, that's a very good point. So we invited you to come here and to talk about the experience you have and 
the opinions you already produced about the EU enlargement. But before we go even to that, I'm very interested in having your take about something that you referred often, and that is to have qualified voting on EU foreign policy. And in fact, that was one of the major takeaways from the Renew Europe Roundtable discussions for the Conference of the Future of Europe. It was in Strasbourg. I was very fortunate to be there. Now, my question to you then, with this situation of the attacks in Russia and the need to have celerity, to have things happening and not stopping because of not having unanimity. Do you think that this, after we get to this crisis, this will work as an engine to move faster in that direction or the status quo will get back to what it was? Well, of course, I really hope that uh, this will be changed so that at least in the issues related to the reaction to, well, violation of human rights, violation of international law, Uh, that uh, here the decision-making process will be changed Mm -hmm. because uh, during last years, unfortunately, we have seen during different uh, situations where one or two or three countries uh, try to block uh, the decision of all 27 member states or to postpone or to dilute. Uh, We saw it, uh, for example, when the EU wanted to Uh, decide sanctions against Lukashenko and Lukashenko's regime. We also have seen it now during uh, Russian war in in Ukraine. Situation is for me rather simple. If the European Union really wants to make difference and be influential, uh, then we also have to react uh, quicker and uh, with more sense. And that's why I guess that this situation where one or two countries can simply block the decision of all 27 in the issues related, as I said, to reaction to uh, violation of, of human rights or, or, or international law. I simply think that uh, this weakens European Union and European Union's image uh, globally. Mm-hmm. So that's why I really hope that this change will be made. But of course, I understand that also for this change, there is need for consensus. And of course, um, well, there are a few countries today which I guess going to block uh, this change as well as they are blocking also time to time some sanctions. But that is a fantastic point because one of the concerns we had during those roundtable discussions and even during the conference, very legitimate fear that things will just be on the paper and there will be no movement because, again, some countries can say, no, we don't want to have new treaties. We don't have to change the things as, as they are. So for you that you are inside this system, how much do you think that this then is a factor for policymakers? Because you don't want to defraud the expectations of Europeans that associated to the project of discussing the future of Europe. Yeah, well, the truth is that for every serious change or every serious decision in the European Union, yes, you need consensus. Uh, also, to change the rules, you, mm-hmm. you need consensus. So that, that's why I'm not, uh, how to say, very optimistic that uh, this change will happen in a very foreseeable future, because I know, yes, there are a few countries which have still position that all decisions should be made only on consensual uh, basis, and they don't support uh, the change of, of voting system in the European Council. 
So that, but but anyway, I guess that uh, it's important to keep here permanent pressure and permanent um, well expression why this is important, uh, why we all need that EU's foreign policy is more efficient, so that there is also no real alternative. But yes, at this stage, I guess well still the work should be done to influence all member states so that they going to support uh, this change and, and consensus will be reached to skip consensus. In, in <laughs> That's a good turn of phrase right there. I'm going to start using that, that sentence. It's quite interesting. There will have to be consensus to stop needing to have a consensus. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you, and that is has to do with some of your public positions, which are very, very interesting. And I wanted to have your take with a little more detail. And one of them uh, you refer, it's to stop prefer preferential relationships with countries that do not condemn Russian actions, putting that pressure on the system. Now, my question to you, and, and this is a discussion that it's quite often happens in European Union, and that is we will be punishing people watch, who are not the rulers, who are not the people making the decision of not condemning Russia. So please go a little more into detail why you make that argument. For me, uh, the Russian war against Ukraine, Russian aggression against Ukraine, all these thousands of, uh, already tens of thousands of uh, war crimes which have been committed, for me, all of this is black and white issue. Mm -hmm. You are on the right side of the history or not. So there are no, for me, there are no gray areas in between. It is black and white issue. And it clearly means that if you vocally or with your actions support the aggressor, then you're clearly on the wrong, wrong side. We all know that the European Union is very proud that we are based on the human rights. We are based on the lots of nice values. It also in practice should mean that also our well practical foreign policy tries also to strengthen these values we are based on. Uh, well, there is also saying that you cannot be everybody's darling. So mm -hmm. that if, for example, country X uh, under these circumstances decides publicly support Russia and Russian aggression against Ukraine, then there should also be consequences. I mean here that the European Union cannot just close its eyes and make the face that sort of nothing happened. Uh, I'm not talking about um, punishment against uh, maybe this particular third country. But what I'm talking about is that these countries also should not get from the European Union any benefits, be it the uh, preferences in trade agreements or access to the European common market or whatever other uh, things which may be there. Uh, so that in this sense... Uh, I would like to see that also the European foreign policy works so that the all tools and all elements are together and are targeted for the same goals. I mean here the classical diplomacy, but mm -hmm. also foreign trade. Mm -hmm. I mean here trade agreements or trade preferences. I also mean development cooperation. I also, of course, mean uh, European defense policy. Mm -hmm. So that all these elements should uh, work together. So that it cannot be like this, that if country X in one day is together with uh, Russia uh, and giving excuses uh, for, for Putin or for Russia, 
what concerns war against the Ukraine. And then next day, European Union gives to this country X, I don't know, some development cooperation money or moves forward with uh, some trade agreement draft or, or so on. Uh, it cannot be like this. So that, that's why I say that we should pay attention also to the third countries, how they behave. So that, for example, today when we speak, I just saw the news that, well, Putin is planning to make bilateral visit to Tajikistan. Mm. Well, under these circumstances, if Tajikistan really hosts uh, Putin, the president of aggressor country, then I guess there also should be consequences for in, in relations with European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, so that in this sense, I guess we should not just sit silent uh, when also third countries who get uh, some benefits uh, from the European Union actually in this very important issue of, of human lives, of human rights, of international law are behaving 180 degrees against our principles. And I must say on a personal note, Mr. Pet, that is very, very refreshing to see someone that believes there are black and white answers uh, in this postmodern relative. Yeah, yeah. Usually I don't. Usually I don't. I know that most of life is sort of a gray zone. But for me, this war, this aggression is black and white issue, especially when we saw uh, already, unfortunately, what happened during this more than four months uh, in Ukraine. All those killings, uh, targeting civil population, committing yeah. uh, war crimes and so on. Yeah. Even as we're recording this podcast to our listeners, we just came up from the news that there was an attack on a shopping mall. There's no strategic people in shop, shopping mall. Yes, yeah. yes. There's no strategic objective. It's just causing terror. Let's stick with Russia for a little more because you also uh, proposed that a way to solve this uh, crisis and another crisis that may come, it's that there should be a radical change in Russia. You, of course, are very close to the center of this uh, discussion, being from Estonia. So how can we make this happen, not only from the outside? You already mentioned some of the tools, and there are all that we know, like uh, sanctions. But how can we make this being more organic then? You knowing, I'm sure you know Russia very well. Well, I guess it's obvious that uh, we or, or Europe cannot do this. This mainly should, well, start and end from Russian society itself. What we can and should do is, of course, uh, to speak openly where the problem is with the hope that at least part of Russian society gets also, uh, well, disinformation from, uh, from Europe, which is in this sense more objective or is objective information. This is also important that aggressor country uh, should be also under sanctions so that that's why it's important that the financial ability for Russian regime to continue the war in, in Ukraine will be weakened. Mm-hmm. That's why it's also important to give all assistance we can to Ukraine, be it military, be it economical, be it political, and so on and so on. But it's obvious that the regime change can only come from inside, from inside Russia. So that in this sense, nobody knows. I also don't know how long mm-hmm. uh, this uh, regime continues to exist. But I guess for Europe, it also should be clear that if even the war in Ukraine ends, then there should 
and cannot be any return to the situation in relations with Russia we had before uh, the war, as long as the same regime is in Moscow. Because I also, well, have this parallel that uh, we, we can think that, uh, for example, if after Second World War, okay, Nazi Germany lost the war, but if Hitler's regime would continue after Second World War, can you imagine that, uh, uh, well, Europe or, or the rest of the world could return with the Hitler's regime to business as usual? Yeah. I guess it is simply, well, not thinkable. But the same applies also to today's Russian regime, that if even the war will be over, I cannot imagine uh, that European democracies can continue with Russian regime as nothing happened, as long as, yes, the same regime sits in, in, in Moscow. That was an excellent analogy. I, I never thought about it that way, and it makes perfect sense. Are you in agreement with people that say that this is just a way to chop you know, the snake by the head and just get rid of, rid of Putin? Because most empirical evidence shows that the entire Kremlin system, it's, it's quite monolithic and we don't see changes happening that easily. Or do you think that there could be you know, such a turning point that the, an exit of Putin from the scene can, can make Russia become a little more rational? I'm, I'm not very optimistic about this because uh, if you look at the Russian history throughout the centuries, uh, then there have been, how to say, the bit more free and, and easier, well, short periods of time. But in principle, Russia always, during through the all, all its history, has been very authoritarian and, uh, in this sense, very repressing regime, be it uh, during the Tsar times, be it during uh, well, Soviet Union or communist times, and also these days. So that, yes, we have seen very short spots in, in Russian history where it was a bit more uh, free, but also, of course, not a democracy. Uh, so that in this sense, I'm, I'm not too optimistic. But uh, I guess that the first step, of course, should be that the present regime led by Putin, who started the war in, in Ukraine and, and has the war in Ukraine, of course, with this particular regime. I, as I said, I, I cannot see any chance uh, that we, sh we can normalize relations also after the war. So that, and it's obvious that some sort of changes also will be in Russia because Putin is not there forever. Mm -hmm. And with changes uh, of the president or of the political leader of the country anyway, some sort of changes there will be. Mm -hmm. But of course, uh, as I said, I'm not too optimistic that there will be 180 degrees turn and all of southern Russia will be be uh, well full-fledged democracy it, it it will not happen it, it's clear because there is no uh, ground in in present russian society for this but what uh, can happen is that there will be well new leader new leadership and something at least will will change uh, to to more free or, or liberal society but mm -hmm. but not of course full-fledged democracy for this there is no ground so that um, yeah Every, every change of the political leader brings some changes, but how deep they are or, or what kind of changes they will be, of course, it is at this stage impossible to, to predict. There is a saying that goes, hope springs eternal, but a 
a little bit of realism. It's always a good idea. So let's get into the reason why um, we have you here, but all this is connected, and that is the EU enlargement. You also have public positions on this. So my first question to you, and I have a two-part question, is now that we already have Ukraine and Moldavia uh, in the process of becoming candidate countries, I have a very important question for you. And then in certain member states, I see that discussion happen often. And that is, what are the realistic perspectives of this process? So that people, not only people inside the European Union, but also the candidates don't get defrauded by the process. What are your take on this? Well, we, from recent past, we also have very different kind of examples. We have seen, um, well, the enlargement process uh, rather successful uh, with several Eastern and Central European countries, uh, which also in the beginning were not in the best shape, but uh, the negotiations and enlargement talks also helped these mm -hmm. countries uh, to be reformed because they really wanted it. And at the same time, we will have also example of Turkey, uh, which has been candidate country for close to 40 years. Um, there are no enlargement talks anymore at all. Uh, so this is uh, not very successful example at, at this very moment. So that I would say that everything in final end or most of it will depend on the real motivation and actions uh, of the candidate countries. Mm -hmm. So that uh, if uh, well, war will be over and Ukraine, for example, can start uh, well, more or less normally to develop again, then very much will depend on the motivation and, and real political will to make all these changes uh, from Ukrainian side. The same applies, of course, to, to Moldova. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the very end, there will be the moment that, again, we reached uh, to the point of consensus that all member states of the EU have to be on the same position to accept or not the candidate country which uh, ended positively enlargement negotiations. So that in final end, of course, the ball will be in the hands of existing EU member states. But anyway, also for those countries, it will be very difficult to say no in final end if candidate country has uh, well changed tremendously and fulfills enlargement criteria. So that um, if, if to look at uh, Ukraine and Moldova, then of course it will be not very easy and very fast process. Uh, but once again, it depends on, on motivation. It's, it's doable, uh, but of course it demands very harsh uh, work and political will from, from candidate countries at, at mm -hmm. the first stage. The discussions of candidate countries saying, all right, we did, we are doing our job, we are reforming our institutions, we are making investments, we are trying to change our economy. And then all of a sudden you have countries that, if not, because that's literally impossible, if not going forward in them, but at least there's going to be a competition, a positive one, let's say. These countries are saying, all right, we've been working on this for 15 years now. <laughs> so why do you ask, how do you answer that? What is, what is your reply to those, to those very legitimate questions? Well, two things. First, uh, maybe it sounds a little bit cynical, but the fact is that uh, what counts, it, it's results. 
mm-hmm. not how long the process has been, but results. It's a great so point. that, of course, you can sit there and have negotiations forever with any real results. And then to say that, well, we have had negotiations for 20 years and nothing happens. Of course, nothing will happen if there are no results. So that uh, this is one. And second is also the enlargement negotiations for candidate country uh, are not only to get membership uh, in the European Union, but I guess even more important is that uh, during these negotiations, the countries themselves really change. So how I guess that at least majority of the population of these countries want to see how the country changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, here the more uh, rule of law in the country, less corruption, more economic and whatever other reasons, uh, uh, freedoms, and so on and so on. So that uh, the only goal should not be in this sense bureaucratic target to get the EU membership. But the substantial point is that you can get EU membership if you make all these changes. And all mm-hmm. these changes are not because of the rest of the EU member states, but because of your country. Yeah. So that if I recall, well, for example, the path uh, towards the EU of my country, of Estonia, then yes, the nice target was to get EU membership. But we never knew if it will be, well, there or, or if this process will be successful. But we were happy already with the process so that this negotiations process helped us to change our society so that in final end, it will be normal democratic European society. And so that in this sense, it's, it's really substantial. It, it's not just formality that somebody is candidate, somebody is member. We have in Europe also many countries uh, who are very well functioning uh, democracies, but they are not in the European Union. I do agree with you, which is some countries shouldn't even let that complain move forward. Serbia is one of them. Uh, with all respect from Serbian people that want to, Europe, to be Europeans, but what we've been seeing now with Serbia response, even from their general population regarding the war in Ukraine, it, it, it makes one wonder if, if they're heading in, in, in that direction that you just mentioned, and that is just not economics, it's just not political, but it's also social and, and, and European identity. It's also very much about the values. But if you yes. look at the moment Serbia, then Serbia, well, is the only European window uh, for Russia and Russians to Europe because uh, the only flights you can take yes. from Russian cities to Europe is to Belgrade because uh, Serbia didn't join with any uh, European, well, sanctions. Uh, and I, well, recall here my story about uh, the issue of black and white in the case yes. of war of aggression. And here is also, well, unfortunately, very sad answer what concerns Serbia. As we're running out of time, and I'm very, very happy to have you on the podcast. Tell us how can our listeners know more about this and how can they follow your work online? They can follow my Twitter. They can follow my uh, Facebook page because there are also very modern translator translation systems there, of course. Not everything is in, in English. And, uh, well, I recently also published uh, one book uh, about uh, European foreign policy and the future of European foreign policy. So that if 
somebody cares, then I also well do recommend to, to look at this book. Good. I'm going to put the link to the book and to your social network accounts for people then to follow you and to uh, buy your book and read it. As a final note, please give my regards to lovely Tallinn which I think is one of the most beautiful cities that I've visited. And unfortunately, I've visited a lot, but I have very good memories of your city, which is a wonderful, wonderful place to visit. And I imagine to live. So with this, I've been talking with MEP Urmas Payet. This was very, very interesting and very illuminating. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much. And I agree that Tallinn is a very beautiful city. So welcome to Estonia. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now, as promised, let me introduce you to one of the ELF projects called Liberal Reads that packs big ideas and introduces new ones in audio file on paper format for a 30-minute condensed but informative perspective. Some of the latest issues are, for example, Empathy as Pillar of Liberalism, John Milton against Paternalism on the 17th Century, and Camus' Ethical Moderations. To get to know these titles and much more, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash think tank forward slash liberal reads. And this is with an hyphen between think tank and between liberal reads. So again, liberalforum.eu forward slash think hyphen tank forward slash liberal hyphen reads. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>